Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode, you'll hear from longtime reporter, editor, and publisher Peter Osnos. He's published books by Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Vladimir Putin. In his new memoir, An Especially Good View, he discusses his publishing history, his family's escape from Poland in 1939, working for legendary journalist I.F. Stone and Ben Bradley, and reporting on the Vietnam War for The Washington Post. Mr. Osnos was vice president and senior editor at Random House from 1984 to 1996, and he founded his own publishing house, Public Affairs, in 1997. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Peter Osnos, I wanted to start our conversation with a publishing story. In 1997, you started your own publishing house, Public Affairs, and uh, just a short while later, one of your first projects earned a New York Times story with the headline, Steamy Report Aids a Publisher's Debut. Tell me the story behind that headline. Well, you never know what's going to happen to give you a lift. But the first season we were publishing, which was the fall of 1998, was also when the Star Report was being published. And we had a very sort of serious list. Uh, First book was called Lawyer, (laughs) about Arthur Lyman. And then when, I think it was a Monday or a Tuesday, they they announced that the Star Report was coming out on Friday. And before that, at Random House, at Times Books, I did something called Rabbits, which is I would take a document, dust it off, and publish it, because I could do that. And it was a very successful way to do government documents at a time before people could really download them with the same kind of ease. Anyway, so a Wall Street Journal reporter, publishing reporter, calls, and I'm sitting in my little tiny conference room with my team, and he says, Peter, Peter, I know you like to do this. Will you be publishing the Star Report? I said, of course I'll be publishing the Star Report. And then I went back and I said, are we publishing the Star Report? (laughs) I made a single call. I called the Washington Post, where I'd worked for many years, and I said, if I publish this book, will you give me, and remember, this is a long time ago, give me the disc and your first day coverage, and we'll publish it as a book. And they said, why not? What's to lose? So then comes, oh, by the way, other publishers wouldn't touch it. So we got the lead of the next day story. Fledgling publisher will do Star Report. I didn't like being called fledgling, but I took it. For comes Friday, the report is released. I go down to Washington with two of my colleagues. And at 8 p.m., after the close of, the, of, the, of their deadline, they hand me the disc. And then I get a call from a guy who I used to know who is now working at Amazon as a spokesman. He says, Peter, congratulations. Your Star Report book is number one on the Amazon bestseller list. And I'm just getting the disc, literally getting the disc and the coverage. So the guys go down to Virginia. Overnight, they start printing the book. Book gets shipped by air, which I didn't know about, because if I had, I probably would have, you know, because it was a dollar a book. And if the book hadn't worked, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It lands on Monday and goes immediately to number one on the bestseller list. And so the point of the time story was, can you believe this very earnest publisher ends up starting with probably the raunchiest public document in the history of America, 
And I said, you know, when we called the company Public Affairs, we didn't realize just how close <laughs> it was going to be to reality. And I've always thought that that was an accident, of course, of some kind, but it was meant to happen. <laughs> how many did you end up selling? Hundreds of thousands. And what did it do for your company? Well, what it did initially was get me that story in the Times, and then subsequently a full page at Newsweek. And, you know, even then in the world you live, being noticed is essential. So if you're noticed, and then aside from being noticed, there's something worth noticing, that was really helpful. And how many people get to start a little publishing company and end up in the New York Times as a feature steamy publisher's debut, right? But it didn't change the, what we had, which was a number of other very good books. In fact, that first season, 1998, we published 12 books. Incredibly, four of them were national bestsellers. That's a strike rate that is very unusual. One of them was a book called Blind Man's Bluff, which was about Soviet-American um, submarine warfare or submarine tension. And it was full of stuff that people didn't know. And it turned out, I didn't know, that submariners were dying to read the book. And it was C-SPAN, which was covering a signing up in uh, Connecticut, Norwich, wherever the, you know. And I saw these old submariners with their hats carrying four or five copies of the book. And I said, you know, something's going on here. Sold 400,000 copies of the book. 400,000. And the other part of it that was amazing was the only reason we had the book is because the two young writers had missed their deadline at Simon & Schuster. The book had been canceled, and the agent just tossed it to us desperately to seeing something could be done. So between that and the Star Report, you have to believe that some of these things just don't just happen. You can't really track why they happen. But I concluded at the end of that first year, this is meant to be. Because of the things that we were able to do that other people either wouldn't or couldn't. We could be flexible. I always said plan ahead and be flexible. But if you plan ahead too much, you're not going to be flexible. And we were. And so we had four national bestsellers in the first four months. And instead of a deficit in our first year of couple of million bucks, we were, I don't, I don't want to get too specific, but we had tons of money, and I didn't have the wit at the time, because I'm not a, you know, inherently a businessman. What I should have taken with the money is spent what we needed to and put the rest in the bank, you know, but instead it flowed up to my distributor, and, you know, so it wasn't all that useful long term, but it did get us launched, and as I said, being featured in the New York Times and Newsweek, and probably C-SPAN, <laughs> you know, was a big help. So after decades of publishing other people's book, you're out right now with your own. It's called An Especially Good View. Tell me about the book. Well, the, what happened was my, I have a, my eldest grandson, who's now 17, but when he was about 13, he said to me one day, they call me Elvis, you need to know this, that I decided I didn't want to be boopy or oopy or anything, so I said, let's call me Elvis. So they called me Elvis, and they didn't know it was funny. Now they know it's funny. I said, so Elvis, tell me about your family in World War II. I said, but Ben, it's our family. And I realized the extent to which 
in our world, those people, your grandsons, your great-grandsons and daughters, may not know your story. So I undertook to tell, to find out the story, and it became, that was the beginning, and it became a very extensive, I call it a reported memoir. What's that mean? Reported memoir means it's not, it's not just up here what I remembered. I went back and revisited everything so that I could be sure that what I was saying reflected reality. Because there are many times when your mind might adjust things to, for your own sake. <laughs> you know. And there, in particular, and we'll get into this, I hope, there were things where I should have had very profound reactions, but didn't. And I needed to understand why. And so I went with my wife, Susan, who I met in Vietnam in 1970, we went to Cambodia, we went to Poland, we went to India. All of these are critical places together. And then India was with my grandsons. And we revisited things to see what my recollection was really like and what things were like today. For example, in Cambodia, I wrote a story which I... And the, the lead of the story was, was Pretung, Cambodia. He said, there's nothing left to destroy here because there's nothing left, was the lead of the story. And that would have been 1971 or two. We went back to that town to see what Pretung was like in today's Cambodia 50 years later. And we saw a thriving market town and you know people for whom that catastrophe of the past was ancient history. And when we went to Poland, uh, which is where my parents had started, where they came from, I saw some relatives of mine who were my cousins who still are in Poland. We went to the Auschwitz. It's my third visit to Auschwitz for a variety of reasons. And I went to Auschwitz, and there's scrolls in Auschwitz with the names of everybody who died during the war for one reason or another. And what I found were 19 people who had my name, Asnos, which I'd always thought was an unusual name. I wasn't sure where it came from and so on. But I now know 19 people with that name are in the scrolls at Auschwitz. That makes a very deep impression. Um, and then in India where my parents lived and where I was born and left in a basket. I have a birth certificate that says cast. I've always thought it was funny. Cast, colon, Polish. But I had no memory of India, really. I mean, obviously, I was in a basket when they left. So we went with the grandsons, and we revisited every element of their lives that we could access. How they arrived in India in 1940 with nothing but their wits, really, having escaped from Poland, having made their journey across from Turkey and Iraq, and they finally get to Poland. And we traced their lives there, where, you know, where they lived. We even found a woman who lived in the same apartment building with them, Auntie Nora, 99 and kicking. <laughs> uh, we went and saw my brother ended up going to a school, boarding school, and we went to visit the school to see what it was. And then they left. They lived in a lovely apartment. In India, it wasn't a big deal to have servants, but they had five. And I just thought, nothing? 
to that. Then they got on a troop ship, the USS Hermitage, again, with me in a basket. They crossed the Pacific in 1944 and got to San Pedro, California, took a train to New York, and started over. What was the key? It's Marta and Joseph, her parents. Yeah, what what right. was the key to their success, do you think? I think resilience, obviously, which is such a sort of overused word, but you know why it's overused? Because it's right. I think having studied them, not just as their offspring, but as people, every step of the way I see something that is, is a, it's just a matter of courage, it's a matter of resourcefulness. Um, I can give you, you know, specific little exa- anecdotal example. Um, my father was assigned to a Polish military unit at the start of the war, but by the time he got there, it had already been disbanded. So he couldn't get back to Warsaw, where my mother and brother, who was eight at the time, were under the bombing and all that other business. So by the time my father got to Bucharest, somehow he understood in his wherever that to, to, to get something done, he got himself a little bit of money, had a little gold in his, you know, in his, in his sock, had a suit made in Hamburg, a fancy hat, which was what only very elegant people in Europe wore. He spoke fluent French because they'd lived in Paris. He went to the Romanian foreign ministry and asked to see Mr. Popescu, who was the consular officer. And they sent him upstairs, and he finds himself in the anteroom of the foreign minister, whose name is also Popescu. And they look at my father in his suit. He's an imposing fellow. And the foreign minister gives him a note. Popescu, take care of this man. And that's how my father goes down to the consular office and gets what's called a promisa. Meanwhile, my mother and brother have endured nine months, almost nine months, in Nazi-occupied Poland. And they hadn't been, mercifully, yet arrested, or because the ghetto was just being organized. And I found out only recently that my mother was involved in an underground medical program to help people. In order to get out of Poland with their promisa to go to Bucharest, they had to convert, because Jews were not allowed to take trains. So my mother became Irene. And they got on the train, and they went to Berlin, where my mother had a cousin who was still there. And she went to visit the cousin, and she said, I need a little help getting the train ticket to, to Bucharest so I can... And he said, you know, you don't really need to go. You don't, this is silly. She took my brother, she went out on the balcony, and she said, if you don't give us the money, we're going to jump. He didn't give them the money. He loaned them the money. And I found that man's great-granddaughter, who now lives in California. And I said, why would he have done that? Well, she said, he had a much younger wife, and she didn't really want to leave Berlin because she thought she would have to leave behind all her Persian carpets. They stayed and, of course, died. My mother, Catholic, <laughs> with my brother, gets to Bucharest where my father is there at the station 
I don't know if he was wearing his fancy suit or not, but he was at the station with roses. That was nine months. And what's extraordinary about it is, in all the years that I was their offspring, I don't ever hear heard them. I mean, I knew the legends, because one does. You know the sort of tent poles. But I didn't really know what how it all played out. And my brother in particular, remember, from 8 to 12, he's 12 years older than I am now. He just died last year, but he's 12 years older than I am. So he was from 8 to 12 through the most extraordinary, most, I mean, just you cannot imagine the trauma of being an 8-year-old child when the Nazis come to Warsaw in 1939. He never, ever would acknowledge, I am not a victim. Why am I not a victim? Because I'm here. And I think, and I could never really figure it out, I think one reason why he was able to endure it in the way he was, that his mother was daring, and he believed in her, and that she would help him save him, and that my father was this brick. So my brother Robert, he was a psychiatrist, very successful career as a psychiatrist. And when he was being psychoanalyzed as part of his training, after a year, the psychoanalyst said, you know, Dr. Osnos, fundamentally, you're not accessible. He had buried it all somewhere inside. And it wasn't accessible. And I think that with my parents, they it wasn't that they repressed it. It's that their nature was to just get on with it. And as you're, if you're me, and you were basically, I'd say my parents and I were strangers with the same DNA because I was four months old in the United States and grew up here. I kind of understand the degree to which what they did was so remarkable. And not just them, but other people like them who defied the odds so extraordinarily. They didn't march off to the gas chambers. They used their resourcefulness and their courage and their wit and a little bit of money to save themselves and their families. And, uh, you know, that's a story. And now my grandsons, who, you know, are, live, you know, in <laughs> Northern California in a completely different universe, know that story. And that was sort of the origin of the book. So we have to fast forward through your life. You were raised, <clears throat> excuse me, in New York City, right. and went to college at Brandeis. And I just want to briefly have you tell the story of what was an extraordinary ten-day trip to Mississippi while you were at Brandeis in 1962. Well, the sort of moral of that story is, <clears throat> you don't go to college for the courses. At least that was my story. What happened was that there was a a man named William Higgs who was on a fellowship at Brandeis and he was one of the only very very few white lawyers in Mississippi to represent uh, you know what were then called Negroes you know, civil rights cases and for some reason and I can't really tell you why he asked invited me and two other guys and they were guys two other people <laughs> to drive down to Mississippi with him in February of 1962 and just drive around the state and meet people. Well, February 1962 was at the very beginning of what would later be the great civil rights period in Mississippi. And in that 10-day period, we literally met 
talked with, dined with, all the people who were later critical figures in the civil rights situation in Mississippi, including the great Fannie Lou Hamer, Medgar Evers, who was murdered a year later, James Silver, who was a professor at Ole Miss who wrote the classic book, Mississippi, The Closed Society, which explained Mississippi. And we were even invited to dine with William Faulkner in his home in Oxford, Mississippi, six months before he died. And here was the, in a way, what you never know. We also met James Meredith, who was planning, this was February, so he was planning the following fall to go to Ole Miss. He would be the first black student at Ole Miss. And before I left, I said, to, you, know, you know, Jim, James, whatever I call him, Mr. Meredith, would you write me a letter about why you want to go to Ole Miss? And he did. And six months later, whatever it was, that fall, when he went to Ole Miss, my college newspaper had an exclu- <laughs> exclusive, James Meredith explains why he's going to... Uh, and I can tell you that if you deep dig very, very, very deeply into the archives of even the New York Times, it's a tiny little clip that says James Meredith in an exclusive <laughs> to the Brandeis Justice. So that was what that was. And I thought it made, I wrote my first articles there because I was so struck. I mean, I, what did a kid from New York really know about what it meant to be at black in Mississippi at that time? So it was deeply impressive and moving. And it became part of my you know, worldview to understand that. And I just thought it was an incredible piece of luck. Unfortunately, Bill Higgs was later disbarred. You know, I, you know the state turned on him. And, um, but he was, I, I like to say, an, an, an incredibly in, instrumental figure in my life without realizing it. Before we get too farther into the story, I should tell people that we've known each other for many decades through your publishing work that you've published C-SPAN's books. So uh, th- uh, this is not a uh, completely antiseptic interview. Because no, <laughs> and I just want you to know that C-SPAN and Susan Swain and Brian Lamb, these are people for whom I am deeply devoted to their mission. Well, thank you for that. After Brandeis, Master's in Journalism at Columbia, and then you began work as a journalist with someone named I.F. Stone. Here's our first clip. We have you in a 1982 documentary (laughs) talking about working for I.F. Stone. Let's watch. Hello? Yeah. I am Peter Osnos, and I'm a reporter for the Washington Post now, and I'm 1965-66, I was Izzy Stone's assistant, and my tenure of 10 months ranks as among the longest times anybody has ever worked for him doing anything. And the reason is that he's one of the most difficult people that walks the face of the earth. It's, it's a process of seven days a week, 18 hours a day, just trying to keep up all the time. It starts at, generally it starts about 7.30 in the morning, and Izzy's on the phone, and he's saying, uh, and you're beginning to shake already and he's already been through the New York Times the Washington Post the Baltimore Sun at that point he was also it was the New York Herald Tribune and the Wall Street Journal and you're still struggling through the A section of the Washington Post let alone the you know the little table on the front of the first section the second section of the New York Times I have Stone is one of three people that you credit in the back plate of every book that you've published with public affairs what how did he influence you well, Izzy Stone is what 
he was called, was, in today's world, people would have called him a blogger or a pamphleteer, or he'd be on one of those places where you're having... Izzy, in the McCarthy era, nobody would hire him because he was considered left-wing. And so he went out and started his own little weekly called IF Stone's Weekly. It was $5. And every week, he and his wonderful wife, Esther, on Thursday, when they got it from the printer, McDonald's and Udy's, which is up here in, in northwest Washington printer, they would take it and they would put it in the mailbox. Started with 5,000 subscribers. But among those first 5,000 subscribers was Albert Einstein. <laughs> so it, it sort of very sort of soon became a publication read by a certain kind of people. Um, and it, when the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement were so important in the mid-60s, Izzy was one of the people that everybody who cared read. Now, in the year I worked with him, 1965-66, something really quite remarkable happened. He had always had a serious hearing problem. And in pictures of him before this, he, he had these hearing aids, made it look like a bespectacled Martian, is the way I always described it. But that year, his hearing was restored. And so it was like the world was opening to him in an unusual way. But he, his specialty was digging deeply into documents, reporting stuff that other people didn't find, and writing with a sort of zest and humor as well as investigative skill. And he, you know, offered me this job. Um, so it's going to be tough because uh, it's a hard job. And, but he said, look, Washington's great. There's a story on every tree. Now, for Izzy, the stories are easy to pluck. <laughs> but for a 22-year-old kid, so I, um, but he, for the one and only time it happened, he actually gave me bylines in the weekly, half a dozen. And then when I left, he wrote a little thing saying, well, thank you for, and he thereafter became, we became very friend, friendly. Uh, he tracked me when I went to the Washington Post. He tracked me. And when he died, his family asked me to organize memorial services, you know, to get the people speaking and so on. So even though when I was a kid, and was, and he was tough on me, he was giving me the most extraordinary education in journalism and how to do the things that you want to do rather than things that people make you do. And I, I kind of saw how hard it was, because, you know, Izzy, it didn't, it wasn't automatic. He had to come up with the research, he had to come up with the writing skill, he had to go and mail those, <laughs> that, that, that clip that you just played uh, was from a film called I.F. Stone's Weekly. It was a documentary, which you can get, anybody can get now on YouTube. And when it came out, it was actually 73, when it came out, Vincent Canby, the New York Times reviewer, said, I felt about this movie the way other people felt about The Sound of Music. And he chose it as one of the ten best films of the year, this little 65-minute documentary about I.F. Stone. So if you have time and inclination, it's really easy. YouTube, I.F. Stone's Weekly, and you'll see this young fella, me. People who've seen it say, boy, you sure did have a New York accent. I think, well, maybe he did. 
So from there, 18 years at the Washington Post and mentor number two, Ben Bradley. Right. We have a clip of Ben Bradley. Let's watch and we'll come back. That's the trouble with these people. that uh, They think that they and the press have a common job. Well, they don't. Um, the White House press officer and the White House press system and the president, their job is to tell the truth to the country in a way that makes them look best. And our job is to f try to find the truth, period. And uh, so I, I don't... Uh, and mind you, they all lie to the press. And I think uh, as soon as those lies start coming in, it really is difficult to, to uh, treat them the same. That's Ben Bradley, C-SPAN interview in 1991. Why is he a mentor? Well, uh, Ben was the editor of the Washington Post my whole time there. And as you could see just from that little clip, he had a certain set of standards. Bradley was a great editor, not because he hooked the paragraphs or changed the adjectives, but when Ben Bradley was in a room, you knew you were with the presence of a real editor, somebody who believed in journalism in the best sense. He was tough, he was smart, he was obviously charismatic, and I was, you know, again, I arrived there a kid and was there for 18 years and grew up there. And it was because of the way Bradley led the paper that I came to believe that you could do journalism in the best way. He was on your side, always, as long as you were doing your job right. And I was 26 when he sent me to Vietnam. He calls me in. He didn't tell me I was doing a good job. <laughs> he didn't say, you're a fine fellow. He said, Asun, do you want to go to Vietnam? And of course I said, yes. Bradley believed that journalism was about getting the story, getting it right. And I admired that, you know, in the way a young person would admire. And then there was a relationship between Bradley and Catherine Graham. It was, you know, in journalism terms, the two of them, she as the owner and he as the editor, were able to just build a newspaper that was unique in its ability to go after the news and defend itself when it should, and it recognized when it did things wrong. And so when the time came to start my little my publishing company, I thought, well, Izzy gave me some early grounding, and Ben taught me what it's like to be that kind of a leader. And I went to Ben, and I, I was absolutely sure he would look at me and say, you out of your mind? <laughs> I mean, I'd already been gone from the Post for 10 years, and it was the kind of thing where Bradley would say, well, forgotten but not gone. But he didn't. I said, I'd like to put your initials on my books. And he was flattered. I was surprised. So I did. Izzy had already died, so I had to ask his son, and they thought it was all right. So I now had two, and now you're going to ask me about the third. No, I will in a minute, but first I want to talk about Vietnam, mm -hmm. because not only did you report from there, but later as a publisher, you published numerous books, including notably Robert McNamara's memoir, where he spoke of his regrets over Vietnam policy. V Vietnam shaped your generation in so many ways. What have you come to think about that whole policy experience and period for the United States? I think that what we were as a country was well-meaning but incredibly naive. 
and ignorant. And the reason was that we stumbled into Vietnam thinking we were going to make the world, that part of the world, safe for democracy. We just didn't understand Vietnam at all. And we didn't understand it when we got there, and we sure as hell didn't understand it when we left. And while we thought we were going to protect democracy in Vietnam, there was no democracy in Vietnam. <laughs> so when I got to work with McNamara, I had to explore what it was that he thought they were doing and why it went so terribly wrong. And part of it was, of course, there was hubris and arrogance. Part of it was that of the generation that they were. Post-World War II, they had won the war in, 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 in World War II. The United States was ascendant. They couldn't imagine that they couldn't do whatever they wanted to do. So they stumbled into this thing where they were essentially clueless. And as a reporter, by the time I got there, which was in the fall of 1970, the future was clear, although no one would yet admit it, that it could not end in a conventional way, war. But we pretended it did. Remember? Peace in our time, whatever the term was, we, you know, um, Kissinger saying, you know, we're, we're, we've got peace and so on. I was there as the, as the, as the uh, POWs got off the plane from Hanoi. And America said, well, that's it. The Vietnamese knew, they deeply knew, the South Vietnamese, it was over. There was a, uh, when Richard Nixon in spring, in February of 1972, went to, Pe uh, to Beijing, which was considered at the time a big thing. He's the first time the United States and the Chinese, and it was Nixon and Mao. The largest Vietnamese paper had a cartoon on the front of the two guys in flagrante. <laughs> Vietnamese looked at that, and they knew it was over. The big guys have made up their minds, we're going to lose. And as reporters, we understood that. We, you know, we were not advocates. We were trying to portray what we saw. So the stories that I most look back on were the ones that showed you the disconnect between American and Vietnamese sensibilities. And if one quick story. In the Mekong Delta, the Air Force pulls out of a base, takes everything with them, literally everything, but the dogs. The dogs were the security dogs. A week or two, a month later, the dogs start looking a little straggly, and eventually all the dogs die. Why? Because the Vietnamese daily ration for the dogs was appropriate to the Vietnamese. The American daily ration for the dogs was larger than the, what the Vietnamese got to eat every day. In other words, we were feeding the dogs better than the Vietnamese soldiers, and of course the dogs died. In a way, that's a metaphor of not knowing what you were doing. And is, is, is it evil to be ignorant? Well, it's certainly not forgivable, and McNamara came to understand that. And that was his struggle. And the importance of the book was his willingness over time to accept that. It was a process, I can tell you. I, I've got the tapes and the, you know, the transcripts 
of how he was coming to terms with it. And when the book was published, it was immensely controversial. People, how dare he, after 25 years, finally say, he knew the war was wrong all along. Why didn't he say it then? And I don't think there was an answer to that question. The problem was that guys like Bob McNamara didn't, you know, stand up and beat their chest. Vietnam also was where you met Susan, who My wife. Uh, you have referenced, what, now spouse of 49 years? Is that it was, right? Well, you know, we've been together 50 years. 50 don't tell years. anybody, but it's, you know. <laughs> okay. It produced two children. Absolutely. Catherine and Evan. Right. Our next clip is of Evan talking about <laughs> you. Let's watch. My grandparents on my father's side came from Poland. They were Polish Jews who left at the beginning of World War II. And uh, on my mother's side, my mother's father was an American diplomat who was sent to Hungary and was, in fact, uh, kicked out. He was accused of being a spy, which he wasn't, um, by the Soviet-backed government. But in some ways, these stories, the experience of being ejected from Poland or being ejected from Hungary, formed a kind of backdrop in our family story about life under authoritarianism. And it wasn't an explicit part of our conversation, but I think it always... It, I was always interested in what it felt like to live in a country in which there were fundamental constraints on how you lived and what you could care about and what your values were. And so when there was a moment in my life when I could go to a place and try to dig into that, um, China was the place that fascinated me. He has potential, that kid. <laughs> you say that you're now introduced as Evan Osnos's father. Often people say, how does it feel to be Evan Osnos's father? I say, I'm immensely proud. Well, what's interesting about it, and I don't, this was not programmed in any way. In other words, it wasn't deliberate. But remember, I went to Vietnam as a young man. Evan went to Iraq and covered the war in 2003 and subsequently 2004 and five for the Chicago Tribune. Vietnam, Iraq. Ten years later, I went to the Soviet Union, and he went to China. So whether we knew it or not, the ability to have these sort of essentially parallel experiences makes it possible to understand some of what, what's happening to us. But people, my wife Susan is going to be furious that I'm telling you this. Susan, will you forgive me? But my, my great mother-in-law, fabulous woman, Carol, Sure, is to say, Evan is the most wonderful young man. He's got Peter's brains, but Susan's personality. <laughs> Which, and you could see there, I mean, there's a kind of, a, Evan, Evan's strength is not just his ability to write and report, but his, his understanding of the world around him has always been extraordinary. We have 20 minutes left in our hour. Let's get to mentor number three. Age 40, you switch from being a newspaper reporter to publishing. And there you worked for someone named Robert Bernstein. Let's take a look at him on video huh. from 1989. We feel that human rights is really the most important issue in the world today. We feel that major problems like ecology, drugs, AIDS, disarmament, poverty, overpopulation are all international problems and can no longer be solved by a single nation. And if human rights conditions don't exist in countries, uh, those countries can really not participate in the changes that have to be made. And governments are not the experts. The experts in various countries are always individuals. And they have to be able to work with the experts in other countries if we are to survive. So that we, speaking to those of you from the United States, we believe that while there are many institutions in this country, the greatest institution is our ideas. 
and we have to try to export those ideas in a modest but firm way uh, because our survival uh, depends on them. How did he influence you? Uh, so Bob Bernstein was a publisher, uh, you know, classic, uh, came from a New York Jewish family, went to Harvard, served in World War II, started out as a salesman, the book salesman, the book, and eventually became the chairman of Random House, where he published all kinds of wonderful, almost every major author you can think of of that era was a Random House author. But on the side, he was the one of the founders of what was first called Helsinki Watch and eventually became Human Rights Watch, which is now the most important human rights organization in the world. And I like to say it started in a phone booth. Bob calling George Bundy at the Ford Foundation, who gives him $200,000 to get the thing started. One of the ways that Bob just was extraordinary was standing up once at a, at a meeting, a board meeting at Human Rights Watch. He said, you know, we, we endow our libraries, we endow our hospitals, we endow our universities, let's endow our values. The amazing thing about Bob is when I reminded him of that 10 years later, he forgot he'd said it. <laughs> his, it was all about his instincts for what was right. And to be a person at his level, you know, it's hard now to fully appreciate. Being the chairman of Random House meant that anybody would come to his table. So the early years of what became Human Rights Watch, he would have Arthur Miller and Tony Morrison, and everybody wanted to be around Bob. And, you know, and so he and a woman named Jerry Labor, fabulous woman, was his first sort of an investigator of the human rights situation in Eastern Europe. Arya Nair, who was the first executive director, and then Orville Schell, who was a very distinguished New York lawyer. They started this thing. It was, it was tiny. And by the way, Susan went to work for them. I used to say if, if it had been Google and she'd gone to work for them, we would be billionaires. Instead, it was Human Rights Watch. She was the first press director. But what Bob did consistently was sustain his belief in values. And mercifully for him, it was combined with a very great publishing sensibility. So Random House was, when I got, in 19, he hired me in 19, well, first he told me when I was still working at the Post, he said one day, Peter, journalism's not a fit profession for a grown man. So when you get serious, call me. So I did, eventually. And when I got there in 1984, was the first year Fortune magazine was doing the 100 best companies to work for in America. And Random House was one of them. And it wasn't just because it was a publisher of great books. It was a publisher that had a kind of sensibility about what was important. And that was Bob. And an awful lot of the people who worked for him didn't understand, couldn't really appreciate. Right? So why is he starting every sales meeting by talking about human rights? Because that's the way he's made. So in the end, Izzy... Ben and Bob, B, B, S. And what I decided was I was going to recognize what I call values, standards, and flair. Because that's what those three gentlemen gave me as a model. And I was originally going to call the company BBS, 
But people said, well, you'll know what it means. No one else will, which is how we came to be called Public Affairs. So in publishing both at Random House and then in your own uh, Public Affairs, you have uh, had the opportunity to bring a lot of people to, to uh, bookshelves around the, the, the world, really. I wonder what you feel like you could do as a publisher that you couldn't do as a journalist. Well, I'm... I mean, I didn't know when I got to Random House what I was supposed to do. No one told me. I mean, it wasn't like I had a course. So I did everything. I mean, literally everything. I took out the trash. <laughs> when we came to having an author dinner, I would do the seating. I, you know, my objectives was, were, were to understand the process. I was a reporter. So I reported the process and eventually came to recognize that I like two things. I like very much finding out what the story is, and I like very much figuring out how to share it. And most journalists are focused on that first part. And I didn't know until I got there that I could be focused on the second part and that I would enjoy it that it's books and publishing is a business for sure. Anybody who forgets that it's a business is not paying attention. But it's more than a business. And I like both elements of it. I like the idea that I could find and you know, get good books. We, we, at Public Affairs, we go good books that matter. And that I could publish them in a way that was meaningful and pay the rent. Because you can publish great books, but if you can't pay the rent, eventually somebody's going to come along and knock on your door. So the whole goal always was to find the books that I thought were important, work with the authors, and then figure out how to get them in people's hands. I wonder if you'll indulge me in, in, a, in a kind of a lightning round, mm -hmm. uh, because you have had the opportunity to work with, uh, with presidents. And if I, uh, if I say their name, can you give me a sentence? Because we only have about 15 minutes left of what mm -hmm. you learned through working with them in ways that people rarely get to see. So here's a real test. Can I do it in one sentence? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start. Jimmy Carter. Uh, the wonderful thing about Jimmy Carter was he was everything he pretended to be. He was a man who was deeply principled, and he thought and was, in fact, a writer. Bill Clinton. Look, Bill Clinton was dashing, charismatic, means well, but trying to strike the goddamn, trying to extract the book <laughs> was hard work, but we did. You published Between Hope and History for him. Right, 1996. And on this very program, uh, on this very, and it was book notes at the time, uh, Brian asked him, he said, well, why didn't the book do better? And he said, well, I didn't have much time to promote it. <laughs> I said, that's the first time in history that the author said it wasn't the publisher's fault. Barack Obama, you published his Dreams from My Father. Well, that, you know, as you can imagine, is an, uh, an amazing tale because his book had been rejected, turned down by Simon & Schuster because he had missed his deadline. And this young man shows up on my doorstep and um, he, he wants to write his story. I think basically what he wanted to do was pay back loans college loans. Anyway, we published it in 1995. It did okay. But 2004, when he gave that keynote speech at the Democratic Convention, my descendants, I was long gone by then, dusted off the book, published it, and saw 
four million copies. One more sentence. When we got together when he was inaugurated, and I got to all the people who worked on that book, and I said, you know, this is really historic. This is an extraordinarily important book. We all agree that our one great regret about Barack Obama was that he wasn't more trouble, because we would have, didn't have enough anecdotes, because <laughs> he just got on with it. Donald Trump, you published two of his books, <clears throat> excuse me, including Art of the Deal, which uh, many people think put him on the pathway to the White House. What's your observations on him? Well, I believe that the Donald Trump we saw as president was the Donald Trump I saw as a, as a young-ish fellow, except on steroids. He had many of the same characteristics. Lived over the store, didn't drink, didn't smoke, really only interested in himself, didn't really have values. But when he was a developer and a personality in New York real estate and so on, it didn't really matter all that much. And then he became president, and it did matter. And I truly believe that one of the greatest mistakes in the modern American history was when he announced in 2015, he said he was running for president. People said, oh, this is a joke. People said, we're going to put his you know, stuff on the entertainment pages. Truth is, they underestimated the degree to which Donald Trump resonates with certain people for certain reasons. And, you know, what people forget is when he comes up with all those names and he calls people terrible names, he thinks those up. Donald Trump is disciplined. I'm not going to pass judgment for the nature of a C-SPAN audience. But this is a formidable character. And when I saw him, he was a character in process. And when he was president, he was a character fully grown. I want to get one more leader in here, not American, just for your takes on, because he continues to be vexing for this country, and that's Vladimir Putin. Well, Putin, what happened was when Putin got to be, um, Yeltsin basically picked Putin. Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, who was the leader of the Soviet Union, of the of Russia in the 90s, he picked Putin. He said, I picked Putin. Because of all those guys who was, were hovering around me, he was the one who I thought had the spine to lead the country. The other guys were just tugging their forelocks at me. So he picked Putin. And Putin's first press, essentially, you know, PR person said to me, what can he do to introduce himself to the American people? Should he write a book? And I said, no, because everybody will know he didn't write it. So why don't you get the sort of three major journalists from uh, the, what was then a fairly open pr Russian press to interview him? And they did, 24 hours. And we published the transcript. It was called in, uh, First Person. And it was Putin describing himself. So it was a book in which we were able to present Putin in his own words. Now, of course, a lot of it turns out to have been deceptive, like how much he loved his wife and children and so on. But you could see the character of the guy, a former KGB guy. And the one time I only met him, I only met him once, what I saw was a man who was really tough. He was talking about there was a submarine that went down and all the sailors were were dead. And his view of it was, look, we did what we could. That, you know, I'm so sorry for them. I mean, he's a man with very little sentiment of the kind that other, you know, empathy or any of that. But he's tough and should also not be underestimated. And look, he's now served as the head of, the Soviet, of Russia 
longer than Stalin. From Random House, we've talked about you starting your uh, much-loved publishing house, Public Affairs. You ran the company for eight years. And you tell in your book that you published 300 books, 50 of which were bestsellers. Public Affairs has now gone the way of many small companies and now is as part of a much larger publishing house. As a founder, how do you process that? What's happened to your company? Well, it was inevitable. You know, you, you, uh, I found a... a uh, we were sold to Hachette in 2000. 16. Acquired, it was just in the nature. We were a partnership with our investors, and, and inevitably at some point something was going to happen. And so we were acquired by Hachette, which I have to say um, has been very good to public affairs. They didn't change anything of any, of any consequence at all. Really, literally nothing. Well, they wouldn't give me a desk, but that's, you know. <laughs> but I found a thing in the Wall Street Journal. which was an ad for something, and it said, the average company lasts 20 years. How long, how do you get to 100? And I took from that, we had made it. We had been a startup. We had stayed, you know, in the difficult, sometimes difficult years of handling the money and so forth. We'd made it to the point where somebody wanted to buy us, not to destroy us or to take us down, but to give us another life. So I said we got to the other shore. And to this day, I think that public affairs does what we set out to do, which is publish a certain kind of book. And if you've done it for 20, now, you know, May 29th is going to be our 24th anniversary of founding. My goodness. If you're still around at 24 and you've done what you set out to do, okay. But a lot of that, and I think the C-SPAN viewers should know, that I, a lot of that is, is in, and I'm not, this isn't log rolling here. The way C-SPAN has evolved was very important to me because if you put the mission where it belongs and figure out how to support it, then you're really doing what you should be doing. And that was what our goal was in public affairs. So we're talking because of the publication of your, your memoir and especially Good View, Uh, We have about five minutes left. And in the final section of the book, which is called Reflections, you have a chapter called Wrinkles. Mm -hmm. What is its big reveal? Well, the big reveal about Wrinkles is that, uh, contrary to what you may see in an interview, I'm not invulnerable. And I finally needed to deal with the fact that I had gone through a period, more than once, what we are classically called clinical depression. Why? Where does it come from? What is mental illness? What is stress? And to make a long story short, I finally believe, I firmly believe, that we need to understand the difference between what happens to everybody, which is stress, and stress can be very powerful, and what is mental illness. I thought, because I was depressed, that therefore I had a mental illness. I'm now convinced that what I really had was all kinds of stuff that was bothering me, which I couldn't deal with. I call it deflection in the book, and I've referenced this very early on. These are when things happen, and instead of absorbing them, you deflect them. But they're there. And in the case of I had several really high stress points at one stage involving my family, you know, none of which is mercifully, none of which matters now. And I didn't quite know how to deal with it. What was the one thing they had in common? 
I wasn't in a position to fix them. And because I couldn't fix them, and my whole instinct is action or trying to solve a problem, it had to go somewhere. And I called it depression. But trust me, if you have a problem and you're seeing a therapist, the first question the therapist should ask you is, what's going on now? <laughs> what in your life right now can be affecting you to the point where you need help? It isn't whether your family, you know, you know, whether your parents ignored you as a child. That's not the issue. If you're a grown-up and you have your own family and your own way of seeing the world and things are rough, don't be surprised that you feel it. Stress is normal and take advantage of the fact that stress can be managed just like everything else. So you started this book really as a memoir for family and friends and now it's published. You say at the end for a wider readership you, you suggest they will get a colorful set of experiences with I hope some life lessons. In addition to the one life lesson you just told me, what else will they get from you? What's a life lesson? <laughs> well one of my life lessons is if you're running a business the only thing you need to know is that the bottom line, the only thing that matters, pay your bills. <laughs> that the people who you are doing business with have their interests. And it may be that they want profit or they don't want profit. But always remember that the key in a, in a business setting is do what you believe in, stick with it, pay your bills. Last question. Uh, you offer some observations about aging and ageism in our society. So what's it like to be your age in a digitally focused uh, America with a lot of emphasis on millennials and the Gen Z generation? Well, I'll tell you what, what, what it, it, essentially we are the first, my generation is the first generation to, you know, traditional 65. In, if you're at 65, the odds are you're going to have another 20 years. That means one-third of your adult life comes after 65. And as a society, we haven't yet figured out what to do with it. So I think we should stop talking about retirement and call it repositioning, which is to say you change your role. You don't necessarily, unless you want to, sit in a, you know, what I say is rocking chair becomes wheelchair. Find ways in which you can continue to engage with the world you know, around you. This book was part of that for me brain exercise. And I believe that the, what they call the baby boomer generation, of which is essentially where I am, is the first generation to really truly have to deal with that. 20 years, 65 to 85, of how to make the best use of your time. And as a society and as a culture, we haven't yet really figured that out. And we need to, because there's an awful lot of experience out there. <laughs> an awful lot of people who have been through things and what they, but again, you have to remember what I say in the end of the book. The first stories in this book are from the 40s. That's 80 years ago. So if you think it's history, it's history. Because 80 years before that was 1860. So yes, I'm dealing with history. But I'm also dealing with what history has given us and how to best use it. And age is, you know, the elderly and the old are just like the young. Some are tall, some are short, some are fat, some are thin, some are smart, some are, you know, they may be more vulnerable to certain kinds of illnesses. 
But to assume that just because you're old, you are old, <laughs> which if you look up the definition, is not a plus, that isn't the right way to deal with it. The book is called An Especially Good View. Peter Osnos, thank you for giving C-SPAN an interview just as your book is going to press. We appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 